This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. Over the last 70 years, how close has human civilization come to perishing in a nuclear conflagration? Closer than you might think. These are tough times for the world, so in light of that, we examine an enduring emblem of mirth and merriment, the Wienermobile. And sadly, the great Randy, scientific skeptic and magician, has died at the age of 92. We commemorate his world-renowned achievements and contributions. All of this starts now. U.S. presidential election and uh, sometimes looking through the prism of uh, who would best be served to have their hands on uh, the nuclear codes. You know, sometimes we do evaluate people in that regard, or at least uh, American presidents, so we'll leave that for your subjective assessment. However, it doesn't necessarily mean anything because there can be mishaps en route, uh, and it may not be a, a matter of all these fail-safes built into the system. As a matter of fact, there are stories aplenty of where uh, the world was almost annihilated because of nuclear mishaps. Uh, in fact, Kelsey Atherton has joined us on the line from New Mexico. He's a defense technology journalist based in Albuquerque, and he's going to tell us all about these nuclear close calls. Kelsey, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Always a pleasure. So tell me about these stories. I mean, I'm fascinated how close the world, or at least uh, certain parts of it, have come very close to conflagration, uh, which would be, out of all of the, you know, the uh, panoply of stories that uh, make your list here, the most egregious and the closest we've come. So the closest we have come as a world to uh, nuclear oblivion is probably the case of it was in 1983. It's uh, We know it best by the officer who gave the order not to launch. That was uh, Stanislav Petrov. He was a Soviet officer overlooking um, an early warning uh, system. They just had new satellites up. The satellites are there to detect an early launch of ICBMs from the United States, and they did. Um, they detected the launch of five missiles, and Stanislav Petrov, who was in charge of relaying this information and passing it along to the command, which would make the launch authority, he's like, it seems really weird that the United States would only launch five missiles. Maybe we give it a little bit of time um, and see if there are other missiles, and then, then we relay that. Um, and so he made the call not to pass along that warning, and we didn't have a nuclear war then because um, it was revealed that it wasn't, in fact, a launch. It was sunlight reflected off of clouds that the satellites had picked up on as an early warning. Um, and that's one where the technology mostly worked, right? It did see something. It just saw the wrong thing. And then the people in the process said, maybe this isn't what we expect nuclear war to be, so we don't need to do it. Um, but there's a whole range of other and weirder accidents than that. Well, I was just going to say, though, I mean, uh, this guy, he defied not the one order, but two. Uh, I guess there were two orders to fire in retaliation, and uh, cooler heads prevailed. I mean, they should have given him some kind of a medal for that, for saving the world, a Congressional Medal of Honor from the U.S. at the very least. You know, the other one, I mean, when we talk about leaders who may have their hands on the nuclear codes or whatever, Tell me about the issue in 69. I guess it was a Korean, uh, North Koreans shot down an American plane. It cost a lot of lives. Uh, Richard Nixon wanted to retaliate in a big way, uh, and there was a reason for that. What was it? I mean, Nixon would uh, 
more than once would be drunk when he was told the news and he would feel that the correct response was to fully retaliate. It is a, a deep quirk of history that uh, Kissinger, who is hardly a man um, averse to violence um, or authorizing by the state, would often be the intermediary between when the military would come in and say, we've got this news. What is the order from the president? What is the thing? And he's like, the president is not really in a place to give those orders right now. And so he was sort of the filter. That's not like a formal role. Had the president gotten on the phone directly with the Pentagon, they would have had to follow his order. Um, there was a case during Watergate when a missileer, um, that's the people who sit in the silos and give the, and actually press the buttons once the order to press the buttons has come. This missileer challenged because he had, how do I know? that the order is lawful and coming from a sane president, and he was dismissed from his job for doing that, um, for asking that question. Um, the, the system is designed. It's all built towards launching. Well, I'm just fascinated, too, but uh, the number of stories, uh, or at least there's a couple where, you know, a drunken individual has access. Uh, we were just talking about Nixon, this kind of Dr. Strangelove scenario, <laughs> learning to love the bomb, a yippee-ki-yay kind of thing. Uh, but there was a story with the Royal Navy as well. Somebody who was drunk uh, had on a, a submariner, on a submarine, there were nuclear weapons, and this person had access. I mean, what was that one, and how was that averted? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's... Wild the way that this system relies that every single person in contact with the launch order be uh, sane and sober when that happened. Um, and what you really need, right, is you need someone else to just take over and get get the person out of there and convince the person who is drunk with launch authority to not actually do the launching. <laughs> Kelsey Atherton's with us, defense technology journalist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So, Kelsey, basically what you're saying is, uh, and maybe a lot of folks not familiar with this, the litany of near accidents, uh, is that something that should continue to scare us? Are we far more sophisticated now, more fail-safes built into it? Albeit you've got rogue regimes like North Korea, uh, Iran's on the precipice perhaps of getting a nuclear weapon. What are the prospects that maybe uh, we're going to see something happen at some point in the not-too-distant future that involves uh, a nuclear conflagration? Sure. So I think the, the biggest thing to keep in mind with a, the risk of a nuclear conflagration is the risk goes up. The um, There's two big variables, and one is the more weapons that exist, and the other one is the more countries that have them. And of those... Um, there's obviously a, a risk that there's, there's, if there's more countries who both have nuclear weapons, then there's more possibilities that they'll shoot them at each other. But also, the bigger thing is if you're worried about, like, accidents, if you're worried about error, if you're worried about something blowing up because it was improperly handled or it was stored poorly, or maybe you drop a socket wrench and it hits the part of an ICBM, um, and we're lucky that, that that's a thing that happened. We're lucky it didn't become a worse thing. But... Um, the more missiles you have, the more warheads you have, the greater the risk of accidents. And something that is, I think, um, undervalued in the prospect of our, our nuclear fears is what happens if a nuclear accident happens and a country has to, the leadership of a country has to decide. And usually 
Um, it's like one person, um, usually, right? It's the executive of a country, though there's some variation there, has to decide whether or not they believe the accident was an accident or if they believe it was an attack. Um, and they have to figure out in the space, usually of minutes, um, how to respond. Um, and we have been extremely fortunate as a species so far that even the times that leaders have been uh, angrily wishing they were could be ordering nukes, they haven't actually done so. Um, but that's uh, a lot of gamble to place on luck. I was going to say, uh, it really does seem like it. I mean, you were just referencing the uh, techie who dropped his tool, his socket wrench, down the silo in Arkansas in 1980, and it... Uh, pierced i guess where the fuel container is and it might have lit everything up uh, <laughs> arkansas could have got real lit uh and missiles fired but only dropping about 100 uh, yards away from the actual silo anyway uh crazy story i mean gives us all pause for concern i guess when we think you know we're harboring these things in hardened silos but uh goodness knows every day uh could lead to a big surprise I appreciate you putting it into uh, some perspective for us here, as I say, on the precipice of another election and, uh, I guess, the campaign that uh, we'll see who's going to win and who gets access to these particular weapons. Kelsey, good to talk to you from New Mexico this afternoon. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Kelsey Atherton, defense technology journalist based in Albuquerque. The Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Now, we, we've seen this thing. It uh, actually exists. Oh, but the folks... Remember that song? Okay, uh, well, that was somewhat reminiscent, and if you've got in your mind's eye a fixture of this machine, it's basically a giant hot dog on wheels, and it's like 27 feet long, which leads to uh, maybe it being unwieldy or cumbersome for some of the people driving it, but they really do have a lot of folks who are lined up and want that prestigious position. Let's find out all about it now. When it comes to promotions, this is one of the great ones for the ages. Ed Rowland is with us, Mobile Marketing Manager at Kraft Foods. Ed, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Well, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, well. Love talking about the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Well, how many are on the road as we speak? We actually have six vehicles uh, all across the United States, all piloted by a team of two hot doggers. Two per vehicle. Yes. We get these kids right out of college usually. They're mostly uh, marketing, advertising, PR majors, because as you can imagine, the Wienermobile itself is somewhat of a, a rolling PR firm on wheels. And um, they travel and work with us for one year, living on the road for an entire year, uh, seeing the, uh, the country through the windshield of an American icon. Wow. And so as they travel the country, I mean, they pull into different stops. Typically, how long would they spend in a community or a city? Um, traditionally, we are there anywhere from one to two weeks. We're staying a little bit longer nowadays uh, in the environment we're in. We want to uh, uh, make sure we're in uh, safe communities and, and staying there a little bit longer, making people smile and brightening people's day. And as you can imagine, um, times are a little tough. So when you see the Wienermobile rolling down the road, it, uh, it, it sparks a smile and uh, brightens your day a little bit, and that's what we're all about. What beyond that is the attraction, Ed? Well, you know, it is, it's truly a piece of pop culture. Uh, the Wienermobile, it's been on the road since 1936, believe it or not. The first one hit the roads and the streets of Chicago um, as, as somewhat of a sales tool. Um, and then in 1988, it evolved into more of a, what it is today, more of a rolling PR firm on wheels where we have uh, uh, these, uh, these recent grads out there uh, being spokespeople, pitching media, 
um, running events, um, doing all different kinds of things for us, and been doing that for 33 years uh, in the current state. So what kind of vehicle is it, by the way? It's got to have, like, uh, I guess, a, a chassis. I mean, it's custom, but uh, is it sort of a stock chassis and a motor and all the rest of those things? It, it is, yeah. It's, um, it's, uh, we call it like, it's a cab-forward design chassis, much like uh, if you guys have UPS up there. I'm sure you do in Canada. UPS truck um, or a bread-type truck. Um, and then it's got a Chevy Vortec engine, and it is a regular gas engine, uh, 350 horse. Um, and it, like you said, it's 27 feet long, uh, custom fiberglass built. Um, uh, if you go online, you can uh, download the Wienermobile app and actually get a virtual tour and, and sit shotgun and ride through the, uh, the hills of Spokane, Washington, if you wanted to. <laughs> Again, Ed Rowland is with us. We're talking about the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. Uh, Ed is the mobile marketing manager at Kraft Foods, and uh, this is... I won't say your brainchild originally, but uh, there have been a lot of different iterations uh, of the company that uh, is the parent to this thing. But 27 feet, I mean, this is uh, something that might be unwieldy for just an itinerant driver. You've got to have a special class license. Uh, how do the people train behind the wheel? I mean, parking, parallel parking, or when you pull into a slip, it's got to be a little tricky, no? Well, actually, you'd be surprised how, uh, how smooth it drives. Uh, the people we bring on... Uh, get some extensive training. They're actually trained by uh, the Madison, Wisconsin Police Department, the same people that uh, train the police officers. They go through some closed course training, live road training. It's, it's, it's extensive training, and they're ready when they hit the road. And the vehicles themselves are serviced every 45 days, so we're keeping them uh, in tip-top shape and running well. And uh, when these uh, hot doggers hit the road, they're ready to parallel park this giant hot dog on wheels. Any mishaps to speak of? Well, after being on the road for 84 years, you can, as you can imagine, you might scratch a bun every now and then. But uh, with the training and the maintenance and uh, uh, the things we do, uh, I'd, I'd like to say the millions of miles traveled, um, we've done very, very well in keeping ourselves safe. I was told one time there was an accident, I guess, where the Wienermobile, Wienermobile went into a house in Wisconsin. Was that right? Um, that is that is true. They were turning around, and uh, there was a mishap. It it, uh, it is something that does not happen very often, obviously, but um, like I said, with millions of miles, uh, there is an occasional uh, scratching of the bun. So when, uh, you know, the Wienermobile is mobbed at locations, I'm guessing it becomes somewhat of a local attraction. We had a rubber duck during the Pan Am Games here in 2015 that drew all kinds of people down to our waterfront to see this big inflatable. So I'm guessing, you know, these attractions and people wanting to take their pictures with them and everything else like that, they must draw a crowd. Is there anything uh, apart from just, you know, getting the photo op or whatever? Uh, are there uh, hot dogs or anything dispensed here or other memorabilia? Um, we do not serve hot dogs, but we do have other, other memorabilia. We have the famous Wiener Whistle that's been around since 1952. And anytime you see the Wienermobile, you can get a Wiener Whistle as that special memento to remember your visit. Um, and every year, the, what we do at events is a little bit different. And as you can imagine, this year uh, in the environment we're in, things are different. Um, lots of uh, PPE, masks, sanitizer, gloves, and social distancing and CDC guidelines are being followed as we uh, travel the country now. Um, but there's still always that opportunity for a family to come up and get a picture, uh, get their, their wiener whistle. Um, and we're doing a lot more uh, thank you events. We did uh, reverse graduation since the students couldn't walk this year down the graduation aisle. Um, the Wienermobile drove around communities uh, 
congratulating students for graduation um, and giving back. You know, and thank you, thank you tours for our, our frontline workers and especially our, our Kraft Heinz employees that are keeping products on the shelves uh, uh, during these tough times. You know what I mean? In the 80 plus years you cited that this thing has been in existence, I mean, for some, uh, to some minds, and maybe uh, a while back it would have been seen as a quaint a- anachronism. Was there ever any thought to put it out to pasture, discontinue, or uh, did you just retain the legacy because it's been ever popular? Well, there was a short time in the 70s where it, it had a bit of a hiatus, uh, and that was when we were going through the Oscar Mayer jingles like you played at the beginning of your program here. and. Uh, back in those days, you could reach the reach the world on on three different networks, uh, and now uh, they brought it back in in the 80s. You know when the hot dogger tradition came back, and it's more relevant now than ever. Uh, one of the key uh, responsibilities of a hot dogger and a team is to create social content. Uh, they have their own social channels as well as contributing to the Oscar Mayer company and brand channels, and the pictures. Everybody's you know the, the profile pictures and the images that people are taking uh, are nonstop. I mean, I tell these hot doggers, they'll, in this one year, we'll have them be photographed more than they will the rest of their life. Uh, so it's, it's more relevant today in the world of social media probably than it has ever been. So uh, I don't think uh, uh, there's any plans of taking it off the road anytime soon. As a matter of fact, I was told that uh, this was also a part, or the Wienermobile played a role in a marriage proposal rather recently. Uh, how'd that go? It did. I've, I've been running this program for 17 years and uh, never had one of these, but one of my hot doggers, a gentleman from the University of Alabama named Zach, um, proposed to his girlfriend uh, out at uh, uh, Yellowstone National Park, and uh, it was quite an event, and uh, it was pretty neat. It was a special moment for them, and uh, uh, it, it sort of got viral. It went out all around the country, and lots of people saw, saw it, and um, we do have, you know, you can go ahead and request the Wienermobile uh, in the United States. Sadly, we don't have anything in, in Canada yet, but you never know what the future brings. Uh, but it's, uh, it's out there. We get thousands and thousands of requests. And if you're one of the lucky dogs, we'll, we'll help you uh, propose to your significant other or, or celebrate one of your special occasions. Uh-huh. Okay, one of the lucky dogs. Uh, I get it. By the way, uh, this Wienermobile is actually surpassed by uh, Ryan Newman's wheels in NASCAR. I understand you also sponsor him on that circuit. We do, yes. Um, and uh, he, he, he is our NASCAR driver, and uh, uh, he, we've done quite a few things with him, and he's a huge Wienermobile and Oscar Mayer hot dog fan as well. So, um pretty neat we'll be continuing that connection with him as well well it sounds like uh, you know it's a lasting legacy 80 plus years and the wienermobile is out there rolling the streets of america uh, albeit down to a fleet of six right now in a time of covid19 but bringing joy and merriment and uh, just a novelty to different communities appreciate this as a marketing gambit uh, this one seems rather unrivaled or unsurpassed so i appreciate your filling us all in ed thanks so much continued success Thank you. Appreciate the time. You got it, Ed Rowland, Mobile Marketing Manager at Kraft Foods. It's one of those days where I guess uh, bittersweet when you consider if you're into the paranormal or busting claims to the paranormal that the amazing Randy, James Randy, passed at 92. And uh, we are going to talk about that with our friend Stephen Novella, professor at Yale University School of Medicine, who's also a vociferous proponent of scientific skepticism host of the weekly podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. 
Amazing Randy. I've spoken to him on numerous occasions, and uh, he had a really, really interesting history. Started out as a magician, effectively, and uh, over the years transpired to uh, prove that magicians were really, because there were many claims to the paranormal and psychic abilities and all the rest. He said, no, it's just parlor tricks. <laughs> you know. In fact, he put up a million dollars to anybody who could prove that the paranormal actually existed. Nobody ever copped the mill. Uh, so, We'll be talking to uh, our friend, Mr. Novella, here in just a few moments. Get him on board and uh, find out uh, what he found particularly uh, noteworthy about the amazing Randy. Because it was a time where uh, he actually colluded with Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show to uh, disprove Uri Geller. Uri Geller at the time was making a lot of noise about bending spoons mentally, you know, and... Uh, the Amazing Randy said, that can't be. That's just, again, a parlor trick. Another great feat uh, was where he actually surpassed Houdini in a submerged coffin in a pool. And uh, I think he did it for like an hour and maybe 40 minutes in a sealed coffin. Whereas Houdini, it was about an hour and a half, uh, if you saw the movie with Tony Curtis. But that's what The Amazing Randy was all about, escaping from 22 jails in his life. And uh, he did bend Barbara Walters' house key on live TV. I mean, those were so ubiquitous. She gave them to everybody, though, didn't she? Anyway, uh, this was the amazing Randy at 92. So who knows if he shuffled off the mortal coil into another world now uh, where he may just come back to prove that the paranormal does exist. Who knows? I mean, uh, he was a great showman. One time, I guess he escaped a straitjacket suspended over Niagara Falls. Also, uh, many, you may ask your grandparents about this. He appeared at the CNE and uh, many dares of uh, our many feats of daring do. That was the amazing Randy, publicly challenging all of those who purported to be. In fact, some, sometimes uh, he would actually tell people, you know, I'm just a magician and uh, these are all just tricks that you can learn and execute. And they would argue with him. They would basically say, there's no way on God's gray earth you, sir, are a psychic. You possess paranormal powers. Go figure. But again, uh, dead at 92, actually born in Toronto. When I was talking to him, he was based out of Buffalo. He had a group called Psychops, which was the uh, people who were examining claims of the paranormal, which is where the million dollars came into it. And uh, he put up this paranormal challenge. These were American dollars, too, to eligible applicants who could demonstrate evidence of any paranormal, supernatural, or occult power or event under test conditions agreed to by both parties. That was The Amazing Randy. Had a regular spot on Stephen Novella's podcast, which again is The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Stephen Novella has joined The Oakley Show here at Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Stephen, really appreciate your coming on. I mean, uh, got to be a bittersweet moment here. The amazing Randy, you knew him well, passed at 92. Uh, what are your first thoughts or your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, Randy was obviously a good friend and colleague, and it's it's very sad, you know, to lose him. But, you know, obviously he was 92. He you know, had many illnesses. We knew this day was coming. It never quite prepares you for it, even when you know that it's coming. But we, we take solace in the fact that, you know, Randy really, he had a long, happy, productive life. We spoke to him about this very thing uh, not too long ago when he said, he, yeah, he's totally ready to go. He has no regrets about his life. 
Uh, he accomplished a lot. He has a lot of friends, you know. So he he was very happy at the end, and I think that, you know, he can. He, if you get to the end of your life a long and productive life with no regrets, you know, what's better than that? Absolutely. You know, and as you mentioned, he had a storied legacy. Uh, I'm just recounting some of the highlights here. What stood out in your mind, though? I mean, what was he most noteworthy for to you? So, you know, uh, he was one of the founders of the skeptical movement, and which I'm obviously an active part of. So for me, he was always sort of a mentor and, you know, an iconic figure who, you know, frequently say, like, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if it weren't for him. You know, a lot of the movement wouldn't be what it is today. He, um, you know, was a magician, as you know, and uh, but also a critical thinker. And he saw that people were using the, you know, the the skills and the techniques of a magician to to take advantage of people, to defraud them, to steal their money, and that made him furious. And he that he set out on a career to. You know, to expose them and to to teach the public how to think more critically and how to recognize fraud when they see it. So debunking came for him to be somewhat of a crusade, is what you're saying. Do you know if there was a where was there a, a pivotal moment in that? It, it was. It was. It was a lifelong career. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, I don't know that there was one pivotal moment. There was multiple instances that he told would tell stories of where. The one that stands out, he was at a uh, very, when he was very young, he was at a local, you know, faith healing session, and the, the faith healer was, was reading prayer cards, and then he would um, pretend as if, like, the, you know, the, the divine powers were giving him the information, and then he would reveal that, you know, the card had the information he said it was going to have on it. But Randy recognized this as the one ahead trick. You know, he was reading the card and then pretending that the next one was the one he just read. It was a very simple magician's trick, but this guy was using it to deceive a large group of people into giving him money. You know, and so that was definitely one of the the cases that he spoke about that really motivated him to go on this crusade, as you say. That was the Peter Popoff case, wasn't it? Well, that was that that came much later. You know, Peter Popoff. Uh, was another faith healer, and he did ex- he did ex- you know expose his techniques. But the big sting operation he did with Peter Popoff was he caught him and his wife using an in-ear radio receiver, where she was reading the prayer cards backstage and telling him on stage through the radio what to say. So similar kind of deception, but that was using more technology rather than just a simple magician's trick. Well, did he make more friends or enemies in those circles of magicians slash, you know, the show people who would pretend to be uh, have access to the paranormal or psychic powers? I mean, he definitely had more friends among magicians and many of his friend magicians. Like, you know, of course, Penn and Teller, probably the most famous um, ones that he had, but also like Banachek. A lot of famous musicians were his uh, mentees, if you will, if you will. And so he he was well-loved within the magician community. But sure, there were some that didn't like the fact that um, he spoke out against magicians pretending to have real magical power. Because, you know, the magic, the, the magic profession is, um, it's, yeah, you are deceiving your audience, but it's, it's a transparent deception. The audience knows they're being deceived, and it's for entertainment. 
and for wonder. But there's never any, you know, there's never any um, real deception where you're pretending to be actually magic, you know. And, but some magicians are in kind of in the gray zone or they sort of flirt with that line, and some are overt. Some say, yes, I have ESP, I have magical power. And those are the ones, like Uri Geller is probably the most famous one that he went up against because, you know, Uri Geller made a career of using his, you know, meager magical skills to, like, really defraud people and and pretend like he could do things like, you know, bend a spoon with his mind. And Randy was like, no, these are all tricks. Any magician with a, with a modicum of skill can do these things. They're just all simple tricks, and he, and he set about exposing them. And, you know, Early Geller didn't like it at all. But most magicians in the community loved him. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned Penn & Teller. That's sort of, you know, uh, the creme de la creme uh, and their show BS, uh, euphemistically speaking. Yuri Geller, he basically uh, took the uh, whatever right out of Yuri Geller and uh, with the complicity of Johnny Carson, didn't he? Oh, yeah. So for many years, Randy was a consultant for Johnny Carson because Carson would like to have these people on his show. And he, he had um, Randy tell him how to prevent them from cheating basically. Sometimes Randy would be on the show himself, but even when he wasn't on the show, he was still telling Carson, because they were close friends, he would tell Carson, this is what you got to do so that this guy can't cheat and pretend like he has powers that he doesn't have. And it was often very simple. Like one guy claimed to move light objects with his mind, and you know, Randy said, yeah, put some uh, you know, popcorn on, on the table around the object so that if he's blowing on it you'll be able to see it and that was all it took for that guy's magical powers to vanish to go away so again he, he put his his you know his critical thinking his you know his intelligence and his uh, his skill as a magician to good use preventing other people from using these same techniques to defraud people so just by way of update uh He's passed now at 92, but in the interim, that $1 million paranormal challenge, nobody ever copped the prize, did they, Stephen? No one even came close. No one even got through the initial screening. You know, So you do like a smaller test first, and then if you pass that, then they do a much more rigorous test, and nobody even got past the, the screening test. Um, I helped them do that. I did some screening tests for, you know, for the JREF, for his organization, and... These are mostly people who really think that they had some power, but they were deceiving themselves. And it's very easy to expose that just by putting into place some basic scientific, you know, uh, precautions, like blinding the analysis or whatever. That's all you have to do, and then they, they obviously can't perform once you do any kind of rigorous scientific observation. And anyway, that was all, you know, not that you know, Randy cared so much about whether dowsing was true or not. It's more about the fact of, this is what people need to know. They need to know how easy it is not only to be deceived. We deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves all the time. But you could do simple things, simple things to, to minimize you know, your self-deception and to protect yourself from being, by being fooled by others. So that was the point, was to show, you know, just to teach people how easy it is to be deceived. Yeah, there's a remarkable story, I guess, uh, that goes many, many years back where somebody actually was shouting and chirping him saying, you know, you're a fraud, you're a charlatan. He said, of course I am. You know, this is all part of show business. Guy says, no, you're a fraud because you actually do have paranormal and psychic powers. He was challenging Randy. Randy was being totally transparent, and yet the guy wasn't buying it. 
Yeah, that's why there's the, there was a movie you know made about Randy's life not too, a few years ago called An Honest Liar, because that's what he was. He would lie, but he would be honest about the fact. Like I'm going to deceive you. What I'm doing is a trick. Uh, and but it, and it doesn't. You know, the good ones, the really good magicians, don't have to deceive you because they're so good that even when you know that what they're doing is is just you know is, is a trick, it's still amazing. It's still unbelievable. And uh, and Randy was definitely in that category. He would do close up magic for you, and he was always entertaining. He just loved entertaining people. He's such a nice guy. And you know, having dinner together, he'd, he'd be compelled. He'd do some kind of close up magic. And it was, again, and even me being a skeptic and knowing some magic, it was all always phenomenal. Just tremendous skill at, at doing what he did. Yeah, he wasn't a killjoy. It was just mostly about the execution of it. And you'd marvel at uh, how it was flawless. And, for example, Barbara Walters, uh, her house key, bent that on live TV. Uh, you know, close-up magic that you cite. The other thing I'm still wrapping my head around is, I mean, he surpassed Houdini in an enclosed coffin submerged. I mean, he spent more than an hour and a half in there, uh, about an hour 40. Any idea how he managed to do that? Or, I mean, uh, do we maybe not give away a secret? Uh, and he'll take that one no, or has taken no. it. He would not give away the magician's secrets. And, and the, you know, the best tricks like that, he he wouldn't tell you how he did it. Uh, if, he, if he ever did tell you how he did a trick, you can be sure that's not how he did it. But he was, he was transparent about that also. He said, whenever a magician tells you they're doing a trick in a certain way, the only thing you can be certain of is they're not doing it that way. They're mm. doing it some other way. But yeah, but we don't, don't reveal the big secrets like that. So that's what I like about it. The, the fun and the show for everybody. Well, that was Penn and Teller. I mean, supposedly, ostensibly, they were telling you how the trick was done. But as you say, uh, they were probably misdirecting, which is part of the craft of uh, being great magician, which was the amazing Randy, as well as, I guess, a debunker. Don't know if he really uh, preferred that term, but uh, he will be eternally remembered as such. And uh, really, he preferred to investigator to, to debunker. But yeah, everyone knows what we mean by that. Absolutely. And uh, one of the progenitors of the skeptic movement, uh, of which you are, uh, I guess, the leading protagonist now, Stephen. I really appreciate you joining us here on short notice to remember your friend, the amazing Randy. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Stephen Novella, again, uh, he tight with the amazing Randy and had him as a regular on his podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. By the way, uh, Stephen's a prof at the university school at Yale University School of Medicine. Uh, bright guy. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 